Welcome to the Freeborn Shard and Tari's podcast on Anchor FM. This is Season 2, Episode 2. I'm Tim Bancroft in Stonehenge, England, and joining me is... Justin Shearer from Melbourne, Australia. And Rick Priestley from Gotham. That's lovely to hear you. That's spelt Gotham, though, isn't it? It's spelt the same as Gotham, yes. G-O-T-H-A-M, but it's pronounced Gotham. So I think we have Batman, really. No. I was going to say, probably, probably a, I don't know what Batman would do all day in Gotham. Gotham. Place, place where goats hang out. Yes, they have, they have goat man, not Batman. That's right. <laughs> Owned to the hairiness of my legs. So I, I have to admit, I have absolutely no idea if you're just winding me up about the pronunciation of Gotham, but... Uh, <laughs> no, no, it's, it's Gotham. It's, yeah, you, you people are allegedly supposed to speak the Queen's English, but uh, i got no idea. I, I certainly don't. Uh, T- Tim's quite posh, aren't you, Tim? <laughs> <laughs> I like to pretend I am, but uh, that's the trouble. As soon as you say I like to pretend I am, it uh, gives it away that actually you're not. Right. Before we go on, before people start questioning my background and my parentage, <laughs> this week we're actually going to talk about the story, the developing story of Antares. We're going to go over how the story's developed from, if you like, the first supplement or from the very start. And then we're going to fill in a few blanks as to what happens outside of the books at those times and then we'll probably discuss depending on time where it might go and all the other sort of like fuzzy lovely details i have to say i'm really excited about this because uh i love the setting but i'm a really really poor keeper upper with uh the background story itself so i'm sure there's tons of gaps that we can cover and it's like I'll have read everything. I think that would be great because you can actually pull us up on what we forget to actually uh, mention, I think. So um, you will, we'll be relying on you to say, what on earth do you mean by that, guys? Can't wait. <laughs> right. So shall I just start with the first bit of the story? Yes, please do that. Yeah. Right. Right. So Zalus Horizon, uh, there was this odd gate found that was far too close to the star and everybody realised that there were potentially two gates in that system so everybody flocked to xylos and then we had the first supplement battle for xylos and to cut a long story short big battle over the gate you Hamnu, who was the concord new who went down to the planet to investigate the new gate i don't think that's actually mentioned in the book itself but she did amana haran then upset the key she found and caused all the time locks in the planet to collapse. And apparently all the time locks were actually keeping the, the gate pristine and isolated from the rest of the Antarian universe. In the general escape, as everybody tried to flee, Yuhamnu got left behind, uh, much to the bewilderment and, I don't know, tears, agony, of Hansa Nairoba, uh, because he was helping others escape whilst fighting off the Gar. And the main thing from then in is that Hansa seemed to drop out the story from then onwards because he remained behind when he couldn't contact Yuhamnu and was trying to do all sorts of things to get in touch and make sure she was okay. After the Xylos uh, story, we kind of went down a couple of dead ends with the next two supplements, whilst we kind of had a bit of a think about how to take the game, really in respect of how Warlord were coping with doing the armies and producing models so um, rather than continue the xylos story we had the the next two supplements really although they they sort of are an extension of xylos because they include some of the same characters they also um 
explores a couple of different ideas, don't they? And I, I think what we need to do really is, is to go back and um, to what difference has Xylos made to the universe? Because it, cause it's a pivotal moment in the uh, in the backstory where the whole notion of the gate system starts to collapse again. And it's all initiated by that uh, by that event. There were some hints about it on Drone Scourge. That's why the Drone Scourge returned, uh, effectively, because of the impact on the rest of the world. And they caused the Virai to start spreading back across the universe. But there are other things happening which we've just alluded to, but not followed up, in terms of all the gates collapsing, or beginning to collapse at a faster rate, and a few erratic gates coming in from the past... Uh, mm. So people are worried that there is a new collapse starting. Yeah, that's certainly uh, a, a, a degeneration in the system or an upset within the system, you know, which introduces all sorts of possibilities in terms of the background and backstory. But the actual what happened to Xylos element is something we haven't uh, yet returned to, mm. which, which I'd like to do quite soon, really. It'd be nice to do that. So should we go over some of the background there, what that happened? Effectively, Hansa was forced to move his ship away from the expanding impenetrable field that surrounded Xylos, and that could well be a shield around the gate, or it could actually be a new nexus being formed, which is, you know, really quite worrying. Uh, he has tried, or he had tried everything to contact Yu Hamnu, including flying drones into the field and all the rest of it, but they just got absorbed and never came out. But as of 1324, sort of in line with the background, field expansion of the actual Xylos planet, if you like, planet, gate, nexus, whatever it is, we don't know, uh, has slowed down, leaving some access to the existing Antares gate. But the rest of it is still a massive unknown. Uh, then we get the side route, which is the Crisis Shard, and which was impacted by Taras Jinnar, failing to cooperate with the Concorde, so Esparak. Uh, increased in power somewhat, get him booted out, saying that he was not very good. And that then set out this whole traditionalists party, I suppose you could say, in Algorand, though I'd hesitate to use the word party. I don't think party is the right word, is it, Rick? It's like a faction or a political movement or, um, just, a, or, or just a cultural power. The, the analogy I always make with the Algorand is um, late Republican Rome, where the uh, you, you have kind of like people or, 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 or clans which are... Uh, rise in importance and have alliances with others and um, Esmerak is he's like one of the traditional invested powerful uh, clans she's the rat clan is one of the most powerful just like the Janar clan was another one yeah she represents that element in Algorand society that doesn't want to cooperate with anyone else that sees themselves as being self-sufficient yes whereas the progressives who are Taras Janar are quite happy to cooperate with others you know Taras cooperated with the Concord but of course they ironically, prefer the more traditional Algorin tools because they see the others happy to work with them, but they still want to keep themselves as separate. Whereas S. Marak uh, socially uh, wants to, if you like, isolate herself from the others. But she's not against. She's head of special division, this developmental section in Algorin. And she is quite happy to use new technologies and embrace the new Intel technologies, even at the risk, so her accusers say, of perhaps going too far down the Intel path and rejecting the freedoms which all Algorin take for granted. So I'm curious, Rick, you know, obviously, you know, you talked a little bit before about how 
this supplement and, and the next one were a little bit of a divergence from the the Xyla storyline, but they're also a different kind of story being told as well. You know, the the, the story that's unfolding between the, I guess, these factions in in the Elgrin and, and so on. It's a it's a very, you know. Like there's a, it's a political story rather than a story of you know like Xylos, which is like a you know a, an action-packed uh, you know these these powerful characters, large larger than life kind of characters racing against time and you know dealing with alien artifacts. It's a different kind of story, so that the story has a different kind of tone. How how do you sort of think about that with respect to the developing Antares story? I don't know really. I think it, I think the uh, crisis shod came out of the Battle for Xylos campaigns and people playing the games. So the fate of Taurus Jainar and his exile was something that was sort of community-led. That suggested that political shift within the Algorin, within Algorin society. So Taurus Jainar has been collaborating with the enemy rather than actually just trying to do the right thing, which is what he was trying to do. Um, he's been collaborating with the enemy. They are the enemy. We must gather our forces and make sure we're protected and safe. And the best way to do that is to put power into the hands of effectively a dictator element within their society. So it suggests a political um, uh, uh, kind of motivation. But I don't know. I always think in those terms. There's quite a lot of that in the Xylos story um, and quite a lot of that in the whole background, really. I mean, you have a similar thing with Gar, where you have the two, if not three, elements of competing for power. I think that's worth mentioning, actually, that actually the Tar-esque thing did rise from, I think it was that first online campaign, wasn't it? Yeah, it was, yeah. I remember that campaign quite well. I'm curious, you know, Rick, I remember from the original Kickstarter, you know, I think you had a, a vision for Antares that was going to be the, these kinds of campaigns or online portal and, and things. And, you know, you got to, to do some of that with this first uh you know xylos campaign it affected the story you know i think what did what did you learn about that original idea of, of having the the players drive the story i learned we didn't have the resources to do it properly uh, sadly um I, I mean originally i would have liked to have done something that was far more involved and on, and on but warlord really not set up to do that they're they're quite uh they they their focus tends to shift very quickly from one thing to another and to do that online, that, that sort of real-time world development requires constant effort. So what we actually tried to do as a result is actually use what we could of the player involvement to actually guide the development as it as it went. So, for example, um, we've just talked about Taras Jinnar and Esmarak. And one of the things rising from the Crisis Shard was that the Crisis Shard escaped off-planet on either a C3 or a Freeborn cruiser, um, which was as a result of Geordie's worldwide campaign. Uh, I think we have to kind of leave that one there as a what if, you know, dot, dot, dot at the end. Because the crisis shot really is a, is, a, is a very singular thing. It's a roguing machine intelligence. Uh, but it doesn't necessarily have to go anywhere. And we have to work within the limits that Warlord um, offer us in terms of model design and, and so on. Uh, so it's it's important not to proliferate the races and the options too much, or, or we'll just make too many demands upon the um, uh, upon the process. It's similar in some ways to do with the drone scourge returns. Whilst it was certainly heavily inspired by the, the potential collapse of the gates, it was 
a side story from the Xylos perspective, from the main background perspective, simply because it was focused on the actual emergence of the Viri, one of these happenstances of the whole Xylos catastrophe. Uh, so whilst you've got low population and low resource systems dropping off Antares, the Virai returned through one of the reopened gates, which looks like it actually went far into the past, which gives a clue as to the Xylos story developing. So there's some temporal issues here, because remember, in Xylos, the Isaurians used a, a chronophysic device to actually reach Xylos in time. Yep. So there's a bit of an issue here. And what happened here is what Rick said, we're trying to... We're still trying to involve what we can from all the campaigns, all the players uh, doing stuff together. And what we had from the Drone Scourge Worldwide Games Day is that the Algrin were militarily absolutely fantastic. They just wiped the ground of everybody else. But the flip side of it was is that nobody else had gathered enough information about the drone scourge. So whilst the Prosperate is really, really safe internally from the Virai, all around the borders, the Virai are thriving because nobody's got enough information, uh, which you know leaves this whole story going on from there of actually the drone scourge are now spreading around um, Antarian space. And the Algrin have now got to face them even more, but on their borders rather than actually inside their own systems, if that makes sense. It's, it's ironic, isn't it, that the the faction that's the the one that's least able to cooperate with all the others is the one that's ended up with the information. Yes, <laughs> which is which is a wonderful irony. But it, but that's just I mean, it's a lovely story element. But it rose from the games day, which was uh, which was just great. Uh, so that leaves rise the impact of that, of course, inside Algrid, because that's what you're going to do. The rest of the world just says, what are you going to do with the, the Virai? We've got to exchange information, whatever, as much as they can. So the Freeborn are doing great guns, uh, selling information about the Virai left, right and centre. Inside, <laughs> you know, inside uh, the Prosperate, you've got Esmerak now, who's got a thorn in her side, which is that her isolationist or traditionalist strategy was militarily very Algrin. But it's failing because she's now got to fight these little fringe fires all the way round. Yes. He's- so that is now the political angle which her opponents, and there are multiple clans, as Rick said, her opponents can actually now focus round together to actually get a chink in her armour because they do not want to see a dictator form. And let's face it, the her particular brand of isolationism and traditionalism does really require a dictator to run or operate. It's suggesting a move away from a republican style of government into an imperial style of government, uh, was the, uh, which I was trying to kind of aim for, really. Yeah, which is what we've got. It's uh, uh, Is Esmerak going to be the new emperor? We don't know, because I think that that's something that we could leave to future games days and future developments of the whole system, because there is a civil war brewing here uh, in which Taras Jinnar has been approached to lead the progressives from exile. And at the moment, obviously, he's just a figurehead because he doesn't have the resources because he's in exile. 
So what is going to happen there? And we've left that hanging for the time being, I think. Yeah, he also has that relationship to the first supplement so that Taurus, JNR, Hanson, Nairoba and the forces of the Concord have a kind of a... There's a group of characters there who are have a relationship and a positive relationship. You know, they're cooperative. Yeah. And I quite like to see him come back in that context uh, myself, but we shall see. As you say, it's one of those things we leave, we'll leave to the, uh, the future. Anyway, going back to the story, because we had last year, we had the splintering shards come out as a supplement. And that gave a lot of background to the Isaurians. But again, that was a that was a background supplement more than anything else, rather than a core story supplement. But it helps give some framework to how Antares and the Nexus operates. Uh, what we had was instead of the Worldwide Campaign Day last year, which actually did start going back to the Xylos story. Uh, I was really pleased to see in that it had artefacts springing to life all around Antares, predominantly, though, in the equatorial regions where the systems are dense. Now, these artefacts, rather ancient ones, but not gate-builder ones, uh, were predicting the collapse of particular gates. Uh, but in between that, Euhamnu's name was appearing on some of the display screens on the artefacts, which really confused people, but so, which meant that they felt that she was either alive or she managed to influence the systems which affected these. But how she did that, they don't know, but she must have done it from somewhere within the Xylos collapsed thing. I don't know what to call it. Blob is just as good a name as any. We just nobody knows what it is at the moment. Because they predict collapsed gates, obviously that makes them immensely valuable, especially to freeborn who don't want to be in systems that are collapsing. And obviously you've got people who've already got their own systems like Concord and uh, the Isaurians who would like to evacuate their citizens from the gates who are about to be disconnected from the Nexus. So there was a big fight over getting control of these artefacts. <coughs> obviously the Boromites want them as well because they don't want to send miners into those systems and as far as the gar were concerned they just turned up because the humans wanted it therefore it had to be good if the gar had it instead of the humans so it's a bit of a spoiler there for them filthy filthy humans <laughs> they're only good for one thing you know killing humans well two things actually killing and then uh, eventually turning into solent green i guess <laughs> delicious yeah, it's a good source of protein from that, you had the Freeborn Privateers and Avados gained a complete set of artefacts, which is fantastic. And that's where we got to. The Boromites gave their artefacts to the Underfallen, uh, and then the story is developed from there. Hansa Nairoba has now come out of exile, really, to try and persuade the Freeborn to give him some artefacts so that he can try and contact Yuhamnu. He obviously tried to get information from the Panhu and Concord and the Sansex, but they're not going to let anybody have their stuff because for them he's not a Yuhu and why should they just give this grubby little mercenary one of their precious artefacts? So the general feeling is that Antares may be in collapse. Yuhamnu being able to contact people through these old watch artefacts or Nexus monitoring artefacts may give a clue to the fact that Antares' 7th collapse could be stopped. And that is in many ways where we are, I think. Yeah, it, it, it's kind of that battle to save the universe, isn't it, uh, uh, on, a, on a large scale? And the relationship between what's happened at Xylos and, and how the, the thing resolves is, is uncertain. 
could go a number of ways, but I tend to think that Yuham Nu is pivotal to that, and uh, uh, Hansa must have his role to play. Absolutely. I mean, it is, in some ways, it's a love story there between Hansa and Yuham Nu, uh, which was hinted at and alluded, uh, and alluded to throughout, I think, the core and in terms of the Battle for Xylos as well. Yeah. I, I hate to say it's a romance, but yeah, sort of. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Okay, we'll back off from there. A very close friendship. <laughs> a very, um, I don't know, it's, it's, a, it's a relationship in which I think there's a, very much a lot of mutual respect there, I think. Yeah, I think so. It, it, it's made a little bit more interesting because we don't really know, and I'm not sure Hansa himself knows who Hansa is. Yeah, it's, uh, and what relationships he have to the freeborn? Like where, is, where is he from? And that's something where you know, there are a number of possibilities, including that... Um, and I've always had a sort of a mind in being, being something of a self-replicating clone. So Hansen might be a very ancient person in a, in a new body, but he, he doesn't necessarily know himself. Yeah, which may make him more attractive to Yu Hamnu because it suggests that there is more in him than perhaps she might uh, see in a normal human being. Yes, yeah, so there's some, something about him that is not, uh, is not a standard human. There may be something within his subconscious that actually is the clue to the, the whole story. We don't know. It's very open. Uh, but where where we take it next? Because we, the story could evolve uh, any number of side branches, uh, uh, like the Crisis Shard, to some extent the Drone Scourge. Um, you know, the collapse of the gates could give us any number of um, individual scenarios to resolve. Uh, Gremlin Cat is, continues in, in the whole exploration stuff um, in terms of getting new up. Uh, new artifacts, which we, we're going to have to delay that. That'll be later in the year. Yep. But one of the things it does show is that Yu Hamnu has managed to survive somehow for several years uh, in real time. She she must have been able to fabricate supplies or is living in some form of time-extended state, perhaps. And everybody's hoping she's working on a solution. Well, maybe, maybe, maybe this is a paradox, and actually, she's the cause or, or the original, the original builder, because of all this going back in time business. Yeah, that's that's actually one of the theories that Rick and I have been discussing. Is that actually the reason why um, it, it's not her, but the time uh, interference is what causes the collapse. So as soon as you get gates opening into a wrong time or the nexus being altered such that it forces gates to open into a time zone that could actually cause a paradox and normally nexus avoids that by only connecting gates into a future of themselves if you systems into a future of themselves mm. see what i mean but the chronophasic devices which if you look at throughout all the background have constantly or the time altering devices have constantly caused a trigger to collapse and one of the main theories is that it's because it's starting to cause or could potentially cause a paradox a time paradox so the nexus just can't cope and says oh i better shut down and sort everything out clunch pulls everything down and then starts building all over again yeah one, yeah. one of the things i i, I love about where this, the story is up to obviously you know there's so much to explore with with that whole you know uh, potential apocalypse and and it's unknown what the nature of the problem is or how to do anything about it and at the same time there's a really 
great little human story around some of the characters. You know, Hans are trying to get to Yuhamnu and, and all of this. Um, but it creates, you know, endless possibilities to represent this on the on the table. And, uh, you know, it, it's not quite, you know, five minutes to midnight, but there's there's a something interesting and, like, exploration-driven. We went off onto a bit of a ramble there as to how design issues can actually impact the story and models actually created for that story and how sometimes that the models and perhaps the resources available or even the modelers available can actually shape what you produce and how you produce it. Obviously we've gone off on a bit of a tangent so what's next for the storyline guys? Uh, well there's, there's lots of possibilities um, uh, and I think to some extent we'd like to see it driven by um, future events in, in a similar way. Yeah, to to some extent, um, it depends on what we can organise um, for uh, uh, possible um, games days and things in the future. Um, the Algorin Civil War being one of the one of the options. I mean, there's that tension within the Algorin. Well, how is that going to be resolved? At the moment, it's a it's a burgeoning civil war mm. uh, in which the Empress may come out on top, but it could be that the Senate manages to stop her and goes back we don't know but we'd love to see that somehow modeled out on the tabletop i'm not too sure how we can do that but that tension though feeds into um stuff like version two the background of version two uh yeah just as that tension of what is actually happening to antares it appears to be starting a collapse but collapses can take anything from about 20 to several hundred years and we don't know how quick this collapse is going to be so that's the tension there as well can it be stopped is another part of the story um and that some of that is on how much how many of the artifacts and how much of the detail can be grabbed by each faction in the meantime obviously a collapse would be a tremendous and calamitous uh, event and uh, dramatically change the Antarian universe. Would you contemplate telling stories post a collapse in this universe? Uh, I think if everything collapsed, you'd, you'd not have the Antarian universe. You'd just have lots of little planets. So I think we have to steer this towards a situation where the collapse either is halted, reversed, or immediately reborn. You know, collapse and reborn in an instant or, re- or over a very short period of time. I think we'd have to do something like that just to retain the setting as a as, as gameable. Yeah. You do have a third option where you, you sort of pause the setting for 25 years at five minutes to midnight. Yeah, yeah, which, of course, is the, uh, uh, 40K uh, and the Warhammer uh, background. Yeah. And people, people got a bit fed up with it in the end, particularly when you got to the, um, you know, the eternal uh, invasion of chaos that's going to destroy the world. And then they did it. <laughs> yeah, uh, and, and that's and that's the issue. This is all just really knocking on from Xylos, so it yeah. looks like there are collapses starting. The great thing about Antares is that already built into the background is this unknown time, so you don't know when it's going to happen. So you do actually have a chance to stop it. And whilst it's easy to say, well, OK, it's going to be stopped at X, or it's likely to continue in some way... Um, The point is, what happens on the way? And that's the whole purpose of the story. And that's what, in many ways, we can shape with the games days and uh, the supplements that come on. Mm. Do more rifts develop so that the Vol are isolated? Or is the Concord and Isaurian extents badly damaged by the collapse or the creation of all these rifts? 
so that the game can still develop and shift into a slightly different tone should it be needed. But all of that lot can actually be set by the players, if you see what I mean. Yeah, it's just yeah. stirring the pot, really, isn't it, in terms yeah. of the, uh, uh, the backstory. I mean, the whole Zygos thing could resolve the birth of a new gate could effectively accrete a new material into the universe. It, rather than it being a the thing collapses, it could be it, a new gate leads into somewhere else or another group of worlds. So rather than the Antara universe shrinking, it actually expands. Yeah, and you have like gold rush type stories, you know, of the fa- of the factions, you know, rushing to all these new places to explore mm. them. And I I also find it interesting, you know, from a storytelling perspective, you know, like you know, as a human, we have a a sense of crisis when faced with. You know these things, and they can be pretty far away, even. But what, how does an uh, like an artificial intelligence make sense of a? You know, they obviously understand that at some point the system is likely. You know, there's a reproductive logic here. The system is does these things periodically, and and how does an Intel make sense of this? Yeah, uh, it's not entirely sure. It would need to acquire data. It would need to acquire enough information to be able to act rationally. At that point, you have to fall back to its its intrinsic purpose, which is, from the Intel's perspective, is to support the human and drone life in the Antarian universe uh, and protect it and uh, enhance that life. Yeah. So all the stories would develop from that perspective rather than just the Intel thinking, oh, no. Yeah, yeah. I, I just think it's interesting, you know, in some respects, the Intel could be set up in a way to uh, knowing that this is going to happen every however many hundred years, thousand years, and, and to devastating effect. The Intel, you know, the, the pan-human concord could be, as a society, driven to try and understand what's what's happening as, a, as an Intel society. And I think that's like that kind of uh, driver to motivate society, whether or not it's like a overt one or, or subtle, you know, to, to hunt down more information, to collect relics for this purpose. You know, there's a, a driving purpose to civilization to protect against this looming collapse. It's, it's fascinating. That's that's what's happening at the moment. That's what we're seeing happen mm. from the Concord and the Cenotex as well. And obviously the Freeborn are sitting there thinking, well, actually, we're doing quite well. We better try and help these guys or we'll collect our own artifacts and sell it to the highest bidder because that's helping them too. Yeah, I think we're in a quite nice position with the backstory because it could go in any number of directions and all of which are equally satisfying. Absolutely. All sorts of bits and bobs could happen. Um, you know, it's how much this affects the vol because the vol are generally cut off from a lot of these artefacts because they are way south of the equator. Um, and whilst they appear to have quite a big extent around the bottom of the globe, it's not as big as it may realise once you wrap it round onto that globe. And it's actually in, if you like, the further apart set of systems. So whilst the Concorde has got loads of things on the equator and the Arsorians have got loads of systems on the equator, the Vol are scratching at the periphery of all these artefacts. So the story can actually develop either the Vol just becoming way more aggressive to try and find out more information to stop the collapse, or the Vol actually being pushed into decline because they don't have the resources and their gates are closing and perhaps they're not going to be able to stop the gates closing, if that makes uh, any sense. It does, although it's a shame to have the vol decline before they even make an appearance, wouldn't it? <laughs> it would be indeed. <laughs> but this is this is the whole thing. I mean, And it could just be we, we still don't know where the sand went. No, uh, I think that's, that's a useful um, uh, potential uh, storyline in itself, isn't it? Mm. I thought the sand peacefully joined an enlightened Intel society and were culturally enriched. Some some of them were assimilated. (laughs) The um, Sankiri uh, had their own Intel 
uh, or their own Imtel equivalent, and um, disappeared. They basically left their world in a bit of a ruin and escaped, but to where, nobody knows. The fact that they had about 150 years to actually work up their escape plans and evacuate their own world um, suggests that they had somewhere to go to, but where they've gone, nobody knows. The suggestion there is that they have retreated into real space, because they, they, never had a, they were never part of the Antarian Nexus, they were mm. a real space empire. The question is, when they were fighting the Isaurians, did they discover that there was such a thing as the Nexus? And have they explored it in some of the... Having, having figured out it exists, have they gone, well, perhaps we should look for a gate somewhere and found one? Or have they just retreated back into real space? In which case, if they did find a gate, it's a case of where and when do they actually reappear? Um, and nobody can tell. Or do they actually find a gate to this separate Xylos network, if the Xylos network exists? You know, so it's, it's, there's loads of options and possibilities there. You've been listening to The Freeborn Shard, Season 2, Episode 2, with Tim Bancroft and... Justin Shearer. And special guest... Rick Priestley. The Shard is produced by Tim Bancroft and music is by Big Nick. And it's used with permission. The Antares logo is copyright Warlord Games and is also used with permission.